the fourth line of logical evidence showing us that the Bible really did come from God is that history says so. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God's. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-11 For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So how do we know that the Bible really did come from God? Well, what do we just see? Apparently, the fourth line of evidence is that history says so. Again, what do we just see? Paul, Paul not only said that the Old Testament history was written down for us, even today, as examples, so we wouldn't do what they did, i.e. sin against God. But here's the point. This admonition to pay attention to the Old Testament and the New Testament history, i.e. the Bible, has pretty much been commonplace throughout all history. Why? Because the bulk of history believed that the Bible really did come from God. And you might want to listen to it. It's only been in recent years that people have become skeptical due to a century or more of false criticism and skepticism. But again, don't take my word for it. Let's listen to history. The first proof that history believed that the Bible really did come from God is shown by their citations of it. Let's take a look at a list of just a few of our early history's citation of just the New Testament. And you tell me if they didn't think it really did come from God. Justin Martyr quoted 330 times. Hippolytus, 1,378 times. Irenaeus, 1,819 times. Clement of Alexandria, 2,406 times. Eusebius, 5,176 times. Tertullian, 7,258 times. Origen, 17,922 times for a grand total of 36,289 times. You might think, well, okay, so whoop de doo dah so what? So what's the big deal about these guys quoting the New Testament so many times? Well, here's the point. Again, stop and think about it. Why would they quote it so often as a source of truth and authority unless they really believed it came from God? Who holds the ultimate authority? And besides, the effects of quoting the New Testament so many times has produced an interesting side effect. Sir David Dalrymple was wondering about the dominance of Scripture in early writing when someone asked him, Suppose that the New Testament had been destroyed and every copy of it lost by the end of the third century. Could it have been collected together again from the writings of the early church fathers of the second and third centuries? And after a great deal of investigation, Dalrymple concluded, That question roused my curiosity. And as I possessed all the existing works of the fathers from the 2nd and 3rd centuries, I commenced to search. And up to this time I have found the entire New Testament, except 
11 verses. Now this is the point. This is the amazing truth. Even if the entire New Testament was completely destroyed, we could still reconstruct it just from the quotations taken from it. The Bible is the only book on the planet you can do this with. History clearly believed it came from God. And this early history witness is important because just like in a crime scene investigation, you want the best, the earliest, and and the most first-hand eyewitness accounts of people who were right on the scene when it happened, right? Of course. Well, this is what we have with the early history accounts. These people were right there on the scene when the biblical events were taking place, and so what they have to say about it carries much more weight than the skeptics today who were 2,000 years removed, right? I mean, how accurate can you be discerning a car wreck 2,000 years later, right? Next to none. But what we have with our early history is that these guys clearly believe that the Bible came from God. And so you might want to listen to them. They're the accurate witness. But that's not all. The second proof that history believed that the Bible really did come from God is shown by their canonicity of it. In other words, how the Bible came to be. And this is an important point because usually the skeptic will say something like this. Well, okay, fine. Maybe early history believed that the Bible came from God. But how do we know that the books we have in the Bible today are the actual ones that are supposed to be there? Haven't you heard? There's lost letters of the Bible that somebody's trying to hide from us. How many guys have heard that before? Yeah, it's all over the place, okay? And this is why it's important to understand the canonicity, or in other words, how the books of the Bible were chosen. When you look at the facts, you'll see there was absolutely no conspiracy at all. Rather, the early church was extremely careful to get it right. They actually put into place a logical filter to help discover which books were logically qualified to be in the Bible. Let's take a look. Here's the filter. Was the author of the book an apostle? Does it agree with the rest of Scripture? Was it accepted by the early church? Was it circulated by the early church? Was it quoted by the early church? And did it come with the power of God? So as you can see with this logical filter in place, the early church really didn't so much determine which books were to be in the Bible as it were they discovered which books were already qualified to be in the Bible. There's no secret conspiracy going on here, and neither is there anything willy-nilly about them choosing which books to be in the Bible. They were extremely careful and logical, and it was guided by God. In fact, the canon of the Scripture, which was pretty well set by about 150 A.D., which is well before Constantine, as well uh, before the first church council, and well before the first pope and the birth of the Roman Catholic Church, And this is an important point because people out there want to say that these entities have secretly kept out certain books uh, that should be in there. You know, those lost books of the Bible. They're hiding it from us. Really? As we just saw, the canon of the Bible was pretty much set by 150 AD, and the books that were rejected were rejected for good reason. They didn't make it through the logical filter. And yet the whole reason why this conspiracy theory idea of these so-called lost books of the Bible is even experiencing a revival of sorts is because there's a book out there that was even made into a movie called The Da Vinci Code. How many of you guys have heard of that? Yeah. But the problem is, once you look at the facts, you see that the Dan Brown, the author, was either really, really a, a bad researcher or a flat-out liar because he's full of errors and inconsistency. For instance, he said that Jesus had kids and was actually married and and, and that there are thousands of manuscripts proving uh, that they're hiding from us. Really? 
Here's the actual conspiracy. Check out the facts. You know, it's quite amazing how scholars and others insist on propagating something that has absolutely no support in reality. As an aside, take the popular idea that was popularized by Dan Brown in The Da Vinci Code that Jesus married Mary Magdalene. There are even, and I've read them, there are even academics who assume that. They take it up. Well, let me tell you that there is not a single text in all the Gnostic writings that we have to record that tell us that Jesus married Mary Magdalene. Not a single text. And yet still, the myth is propagated. In other words, his lie continues to spread. Why? Because he knows the axiom. If you repeat a lie loud enough, long enough, and often enough, people will believe it including in a book or a movie called The Da Vinci Code. It's a lie. But you might be thinking, well, wait a second. Didn't they find in the news a fragment that said Jesus had a wife and was married? No. They found a tiny fragment that said Jesus said to them, my wife, and was cut off. Well, first of all, how many times in the scripture that Jesus, he refers to us, the church, as his bride or wife, right? So, so that means nothing. Second, they're guessing the fragment dates from the 4th century, long after the Gospels were written. They're, they're just trying to tie it in. And third, even the secular researchers studying the fragment said, quote, this doesn't prove anything definitive about Jesus. And I quote again, faking antiquities is not uncommon, which is why many people are already saying the fragment is yet another in a long line of fakes trying to dupe people like with the Da Vinci Code. It's a bunch of baloney, and yet the press just runs with it. And so it is with these so-called lost books of the Bible. When you look at the facts, you'll see that they were never lost. They were rejected for good reason. In fact, once you read them for yourselves, you'll see they actually excluded themselves from the Bible. You don't even need uh, to do it. It's self-evident. For instance, the so-called Judas Gospel was published for us in 2006. But it has been known ever since 180 A.D. where it was rejected. It, it, was made, uh, it made Judas the apostle who betrayed Jesus out to be some sort of a hero. Or there's the so-called letter of Herod, where the person forging that forgot that the Herod at the time of Jesus' birth was not the same Herod at his trial and crucifixion. Oops. <laughs> As one guy says, uh, uh, get your history right uh, if you're going to do a bit of forgery. Or how about the Gospel of Thomas? It tries to give us secret details about Jesus' early years as a child and says, amongst other wild things, that, quote, as Jesus was playing, a child bumps into him and Jesus strikes him dead. Or how about the Acts of John, which states that John comes into an inn and there are bedbugs in the bed. And John commands the bedbugs to get out of the bed and they get out of the bed and march in line right out of the room. Or how about the Acts of of Paul, which says Paul baptizes a lion, and later this lion saved him in the amphitheater. Or how about the Proto-Evangelium of James, which was written to perpetuate the perpetual virginity of Mary, and says that, quote, she was placed in the temple at the age of three, and then angels fed her. Uh, yeah, right. Okay, somebody's got bedbugs, all right. They got bedbugs on the brain. Okay, but as you guys can see, there's a, 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 these so-called lost books of the Bible, they're rubbish. And guess what? They're rubbish today. There is no conspiracy going on. But some will still say, okay, okay, maybe, maybe there weren't any lost books of the Bible. 
But what about those other books that people like the Catholics have in their Bible called the Apocrypha? What about those? How come we don't have those? Well, first of all, the apocryphal books didn't make it into the Protestant Bible for the same reasons why the other books didn't make it into the Bible. They never made it through the logical filter. And also, the Jewish people never had them in their Bible. And Jesus and the apostles never once quoted from them in the Bible. And the reason why the Catholic Church did, okay, was not only to distinguish themselves from our Protestant Bible, but it was also to justify several of their false teachings, like praying for the dead and even purgatory, which appears nowhere in the Bible. Now, for those of you who don't know uh, purgatory, it's the false teaching where the Catholic Church says that when we die, we go to some sort of holding pen where we purge our sins through fire and suffering so we can hopefully make it to heaven, if ever, okay? But if you know our Bible, that's not only ludicrous, it's blasphemous. 2 Corinthians 5.8 in the Bible says, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When we die, praise God, we go straight to be with Jesus. Not some holding pen to suffer for our sins. Purgatory is actually a slap in the face of the atonement of Christ because it says that His sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient payment for all of our sins. That's blasphemy. Besides, I don't know about you, but I don't think I want to trust anybody who can't even get the Ten Commandments right in their so-called Bible. Here's our Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, and you shall not covet. Now, here's the Catholic altered version. You shall have no other gods. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Keep holy the Lord's day. Honor your father and mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods. Now, did you notice what was missing and added there? The second commandment was missing. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. Why? Because figurines and idol worship is big business and big religion in the Catholic Church. But you still have to have a list of ten of the Ten Commandments. So here's what they do. They take the last commandment and split it into two to make it into ten again. A complete mockery of Scripture. And I don't know about you, but I'm not going to trust anything they have to say about the Bible. I'll stick with the early church's canonicity of the Bible. How about you? Much more logical and reliable. The third proof that history believed that the Bible really did come from God is shown by their creeds of it. You tell me if history's greatest minds, rulers, and thinkers throughout all of history give glowing opinions about the Bible really coming from God. Let's take a look at that. W.E. Gladstone said, I've known 95 of the world's greatest men in my time, and of these 87 were followers of the Bible. Napoleon said, The Bible is no mere book, but a living creature with a power that conquers all that oppose it. Queen Victoria said, That book accounts for the supremacy of England. Immanuel Kant, he said, The existence of the Bible as a book for the people is the greatest benefit which the human race has ever experienced. Every attempt to belittle it is a crime against humanity. 
Charles Dickens said, The New Testament is the very best book that ever was or ever will be in the known world. Sir William Herschel said, All human discoveries seem to be made only for the purpose of confirming more and more strongly the truths contained in the sacred scriptures. Sir Isaac Newton, There are more sure marks of authenticity in the Bible than any in profane history. Abraham Lincoln said, I believe that the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Even George Washington said, Listen, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Daniel Webster, he said, If there is anything in my thoughts or style to commend, the credit is due to my parents for instilling in me an early love of the Scriptures. If we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we in our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury us all in glory in our profound obscurity. W.H. Seward said the whole hope of human progress is suspended on the ever-growing influence of the Bible. And Patrick Henry said the Bible is worth all other books which have ever been printed. U.S. Grant said the Bible is the sheet anchor of our liberties. Horace Greeley said it is impossible to enslave mentally or socially a Bible-reading people. The principles of the Bible are the groundwork of human freedom. And Andrew Jackson said that book, sir, is the rock on which our republic rests. Robert E. Lee said, In all my perplexities and distress, the Bible has never failed to give me light and strength. John Quincy Adams said, So great is my veneration for the Bible, that the earlier my children begin to read it, the more confident will be my hope that they will be proved to be useful citizens in their country and respectable members of society. I have for many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year. It looks to me like the world's greatest minds, rulers, and thinkers throughout all of history really believe the Bible came from God. How about you? And if you put all this together, you'll see what's ludicrous. Those who doubt the authenticity of the Bible assume their doubting position has been commonplace throughout history. But as we just saw, nothing could be further from the truth. The belief that the Bible really came from God was virtually held by nearly everyone for the last 2,000 years of history in the church, outside of the church. Therefore, one who doubts the authority of the Bible is forced to say that their own private knowledge of the Bible is greater than all the greatest thinkers and scholars of the Bible for the last 2,000 years, right? Now, this is totally absurd when one takes into account that most people who doubt the authority of the Bible have rarely, if ever, even read the Bible, let alone studied it. And yet, you speak with such authority. And this is why you can't have it both ways. You can't agree with some of the history's teaching and what they document and then turn around and deny the authenticity of the Bible. Why? Because the bulk of man's history clearly presents the Bible as the genuine Word of God, and anything short of this is hypocrisy. The fifth line of evidence shown us that the Bible really did come from God is that transmission standards say so. 2 Peter 1, 16, 18, 19, 20-21 We do not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with Him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. 
For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now this is the passage we saw before where Peter says that he and the apostles did not just whoop up some book like the skeptics want to say, but they were actual eyewitnesses of God, and when they went about to preserve this account for us, i.e. transmit it for us, it was guided along by the who? By the Holy Spirit of God, right? Yet even when you share this with the skeptic, they still say something like, well, uh, even if what was originally spoken to the people in the Bible really did come from God, there's no guarantee that what we have today is totally accurate. Really? And, and, and then they'll usually cite the typical scenario where people play the game of saying a phrase to one person in a circle, and then who in turn whispers it to the next person in the circle, and so on and so forth. And they finally get to the last person in the cir- circle, and, and they share what they heard, and invariably uh, the message is totally different from the original statement. Then they reply that, well, see, this is proof of why the Bible could never have maintained its integrity. But... Actually, those who make this ridiculous assumption are only showing their ignorance of how the Bible has been preserved for us throughout history. It has amazing transmission standards. For instance, many people will look at the Old Testament, especially the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses, and ask, well, how in the world could Moses know what went on in the Genesis account, the Garden of Eden, the flood, etc., when he is so far removed from the actual events? How can we trust what he wrote? Well, simple. That's why you need to pay attention to the genealogical record in the book of Genesis. You know that part in the Bible that most people unfortunately skip over uh, that says so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, okay? Well, there's an interesting thing that happens when you do your homework there. You see, if you add up the years and chart them out, you discover that the lifespan of many of those people overlap each other. Adam knew Methuselah for 243 years. Then Methuselah knew Noah for 600 years. Noah had six living ancestors that could have personally known Adam, and Noah was still alive 58 years after Abraham was born. In fact, all of Abraham's post-flood ancestors, even Noah, were still alive for his early life. And even more interesting is that Noah's son Shem, he was still alive, not just for Abraham, but for even Isaac and Jacob. So, the first 2,157 years of mankind's history is covered by the lives of just three men. That's a far cry from some guys talking around a circle hoping to get it right. (laughs) Moses did not just whoop up some story. The transmissions of data from the beginning of man's history is not only uh, uh, possibly accurate, but it could have been retrieved from first-hand accounts. Furthermore, we need to keep in mind that the authors of the Old Testament didn't just arbitrarily write down some message and hopefully somebody got it right, copied it with no errors. Not at all. In fact, if you study Jewish history, you'll see that they followed strict copying methods for the specific reason of having an accurate transmission of the data. Let me show you what I mean. There's nothing willy-nilly here. A synagogue roll must be written only by a Jewish person and on the skins of clean animals. The scrolls must be fastened together with strings taken from clean animals. Every skin must contain a certain number of lines and columns equal throughout the entire codex. The ink should be black, neither red, green, nor any other color, and be prepared according to a definite recipe. No word or letter, not even a yod, can be written from memory. You must look at the codex before you. The copyist must sit in full Jewish dress, wash his whole body, 
not write the name of God without a pen newly dipped in ink. And even if a king should address him while writing that name, he must take no notice of him. In fact, their manuscripts were checked within 30 days, and even if it had one mistake, it was destroyed by burning it. And even the ashes were buried just to make sure no one would ever find the remains. Therefore, as you can see, this again is a far cry from the common scenario of just talking around a circle, don't you think? But, but what about the New Testament? Just how was it transmitted to us? Is it what, what's recorded for us uh, reliable? Well, let's take a look at some of the common practices of the student of the rabbi back in the days of Jesus. For instance, a good student back in those days was one who did not lose one drop of the rabbi's teaching. And the way they did that was by memorizing literally word for word what they were taught. Also, a rabbi back in those days would purposely teach in parables and other poetic forms, making his teachings even easier to memorize. And guess what method uh, of teaching Rabbi Jesus used? The exact same thing. Therefore, he purposely made it easy for his disciples to memorize all his teachings so they would not lose a drop. But that's still not all. The apostles also had the promise of Jesus sending the Holy Spirit to remind them of what he's taught them to ensure the accuracy of what they recorded down for us. John fourteen twenty five through 26 All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, what you got to keep in mind is that these strict and reliable forms of transmission standards is unique to the Bible alone. Most of the books of antiquity that the skeptics assume are reliable, they don't even come close to following these kinds of standards, let alone have any, yet they believe they're true. In fact, let me give you some examples. For instance, how about the reliability of the so-called transmission standards of the Jehovah's Witnesses? Should we trust their version of the Bible? I don't think so. But let's look at the facts. Let's see how they transmitted their version. The Bible, produced by the Jehovah's Witnesses, called the New World Translation, has caused quite a stir. We are prepared to document that Charles Russell believed he was the sole channel of communication between God and men. He even referred to himself as God's mouthpiece. I was surprised to find out many strange things about Pastor Russell when I did independent research on him. Here, in the finished mystery book, he taught that the churches of Christendom were started by ball-headed men with smoke on their brains. He thought that if a dog's head were shaped like a man's, the dog could think like a man. Uh, Johannes Graeber, or Grieber, was a former Roman Catholic priest. And uh, after getting married to a woman who was him herself a medium, he got the idea that he could translate the New Testament in a more accurate way if he would have some help from a spirit medium. When the occult background of Grieber was exposed by those outside the society, they stopped referring to him as a scholar. Interestingly, the evidence is that they had known about his occult involvement for nearly 30 years. This kind of deliberate cover-up is found throughout their history. My late husband, Bill Setnar, was at the Watchtower headquarters during the work on the New World Translation. 
Former President Fred Franz was mainly responsible for the translation work. He was neither a Hebrew nor a Greek scholar and only had two years of college. There were no scholars. I know because I knew them all personally. The so-called translation was written to reflect their own peculiar doctrines. It's a sham kind of scholarship. This could be called not a separate version of the Bible. In this respect, it's a perversion of the Bible. The only original Greek I knew was George Genghis of the Secretive Translation Committee, and he was no scholar, that's for sure, because he himself told me that before he came to Bethel, he was a short order cook in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm kind of thinking I'm going to stick with our version of the Bible with its strict and reliable transmission standards over that one that was inspired by a guy involved in the occult who believed in bald-headed men with smoke coming off their brains, not to mention talking dogs, and was compiled by a short-order cook and others who knew nothing about biblical languages. <laughs> but that's not all. Jehovah's Witnesses go on to literally delete, chop out, and insert passages into the Bible that are not there, just to prop up their false teachings to make them sound palatable. That's not an accurate transmission. But they're not the only ones. So are the Seventh-day Adventists. They do the exact same thing with their perversion of the Bible called the Clear Word Bible. And the only thing that's clear about it is that it's not trustworthy at all. Don't believe me? Check it out for yourself. During the mid-1800s, within a few years of each other, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Scientists, and Seventh-day Adventists were all presenting doctrines contrary to those held by traditional Bible believers. This central Adventist doctrine, which states that the judgment of believers' works will determine their salvation, is blatantly unbiblical and is not taught by any legitimate Christian denomination. Other heretical Adventist doctrines include the teaching that Christ's atonement for sins on the cross was incomplete, that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel, and that there is no hell. The late Seventh-day Adventist founder, Ellen G. White. Born on November 26, 1827 in Gorham, Maine, Ellen was hit in the head with a rock at the age of nine. She remained unconscious for three weeks, unable to attend school following the incident. Ellen's education ceased at the third grade level. Both her health and her emotions remained fragile as she grew older. She became Ellen White upon her marriage to another former Millerite believer, James White, in 1846. Because she claimed to have the spirit of prophecy, she came to be the visible, absolute authority figure for the initially small group of Adventist believers. Her writings grew to be 17 times as large as the entire Bible. Her followers were to reference these 5,000 articles, 49 books, plus 55,000 manuscript pages she claimed to write and regard them as being as inspired as the Bible. They have, however, made her more embarrassing writings unavailable, locking them securely away in the White Estate vault. Mrs. White, in a vision, also claimed to have traveled, complete with wings, to various planets which were full of inhabitants. She reported meeting Enoch on a distant planet during one of her journeys. Other times, she saw angels using Golden Gate passes to go in and out of heaven. Some of her so-called visions reflected her own racist views. For example, she believed that certain races of people 
were the result of sexual relations between man and animal, which she referred to as an amalgamation. Despite the unbiblical nature of her visions, her followers continued to accept her as God's messenger and her writings as inspired as the Bible. They have their own version of the Bible known as the Clear Word Bible, which inserts the words and ideas of Ellen G. White directly into the biblical text. One can see the extent to which Seventh-day Adventists are prepared to go to support their prophetess, even to the manipulation of Scripture. Now again, maybe it's just me, but uh, I think I'll stick with our version of the Bible with its strict and reliable transmission standards over that one that what? That came from false prophetess who denied Orthodox Christian doctrine, who, who taught false teachings, and believed that certain races today were a result of breeding done with animals and then insert that into your so-called Bible? No thanks. I'll stick to ours, okay? And this is why, again, you can't have it both ways. You can't accept some books of antiquity uh, that have little or no standard of reliable transmissions like those and then turn around and deny the authenticity of the Bible. Why? Because the Bible's unique, amazing, and reliable transmission standards clearly present it as the genuine Word of God. And anything short of this is called hypocrisy. And so it is with the skeptics of the Bible. They spout off bold claims that the Bible cannot be trusted, that the Bible is full of errors, yet it is they who refuse to look at the evidence. People, be encouraged today. You don't have to give in to the attacks of the skeptic. You don't have to give in to doubt. You don't have to give in to one iota of criticism. What we hold in our hands is the genuine Word of God. And that's why, more than ever, we have got to wake up and realize the golden opportunity that God has given to us. Our world is in a frantic search for purpose and direction and meaning to life. They realize that the world's messed up and it's getting worse. And so they're full of questions like, why do I exist? Where did I come from? Where's all this evil coming from? Is there life after death? And, and is there any hope? And it's high time that we, the church, get busy not just saying the Bible came from God, but showing the world that it really did come from God. And the way we do that is by treating it just as good as our cell phones. What if our, cell, our Bible was just as important as our cell phone? What if our Bible were just as important as our cell phone? We treated it like we couldn't live without it. When we forgot it, we went back to get it. We had lots of gadgets to keep us connected to it. We always had it close by in case of an emergency. We carried it around in our purses and pockets. We checked it throughout the day for new messages. We were constantly going over our minutes every month. We made sure our battery never ran low. What if? I think we not only experience revival ourselves, but I think our world will take us much more seriously when we tell them about Jesus and His words of truth in the Bible. How about you?
That's what our world needs to see. Let's be that kind of Christian right now. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple of things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I'm a thief, I'm a blasphemer, I'm an adulterer, I'm a murderer. And the scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step, to admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes 
that we've committed against him and disqualified us that disqualified us for heaven. Right. And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court. The gavel's been passed. The judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty. Uh, you even admit you're guilty. And uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail. You're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty and they've refused to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave. And the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.